Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and chavruta, Yerdena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masecha Psachim, daf Samach Vav, page 66. Now, as we promised you, we're beginning a new parak. This is parak Shishi, the sixth parak. And our daf opens with what's really a very long Mishnah, another very long Mishnah, but of a completely different style than the previous very long Mishnah, um, which, of course, begins on the previous daf. So I'm going to run through that. Um, kind of off the daf, as opposed to reading every word of the Mishnah, because it's a long daf and we have a lot to get to. Yerdain, I know you're going to then pick that up with what also is a very long breita, um, and I would say that that is also of a different style than what we've been paying attention to of late. This daf is, I think, a departure from a lot of the, let's call it the grisly detail of the Beit HaMikdash and the Korban Pesach. Some of it's still here, of course, don't worry. So here's our Mishnah. And this is really what the mission is about, that there are things on Pesach, that meaning related to the Korban Pesach, that will override Shabbat, so that when the 14th of, Pes- of Nisan falls out on Shabbat, there are certain things that you do. And that begins with, of course, the Shechita of the Korban Pesach, and it includes the sprinkling of the blood and the cleaning of the innards and the burning of the fats, meaning these are all the integral, essential elements of the Korban. But then there's other aspects which are, you know, I guess they can be deferred, and those are supposed to be deferred until after Shabbat. For example, and you already heard the hint of this in the when we discussed the pageantry and the, and the procedure from the previous very long Mishnah about what would happen um, for those who were having um, Arab Pesach fall out on Shabbos, right? So they would they would do the roasting of the korban after Shabbat, and that's when they do a certain amount of washing. And there's all kinds of you know the question then becomes why are which elements end up being done on Shabbat and which are not? And the discussion, of course, leads to that which is derabanan, those are which rabbinic precepts as compared to um, to oraita precepts. And so then the, the mission here continues um, about what if you're talking about you're talking about bringing your korban from outside of the Shabbat limit. Can you get it there? You know, when do you have to get to Yerushalayim? When do you have to get to the Beit HaMikdash? And the discussion basically says, yeah, like, you know, yeah, do it beforehand, right? And so on. The question of can you cut off a blemish? Fine. Then Reb Leezer says, and what's particularly interesting about the style of this Mishnah is that we end up with a good amount of rabbinic dispute, rabbinic discussion, but some dispute in the Mishnah, right? As opposed to saying, here's the one or maybe two voices of a Mishnah, and then where the Gemara will come and bring in the Tanaitic voices in debate, citing different bright toad and so on. Here, it's really all located in the same Mishnah. So Reb Leezer says... But hello, Dinhu, isn't this a logical thing that you can make a call of Homer to say, Couldn't you say that if Shrita, which would normally be prohibited on Shabbat because it's a Doraita Malacha, you know, it's a prohibited labor of Shabbat, but that overrides Shabbat for the case of the Korban Pesach, so then couldn't you say that just by virtue of the very fact that this overrides Shabbat, that the shavuot, that the rabbinic prohibitions would not override Shabbat, meaning if it takes that level of, of um, prohibition to say that it's that essential. Um, and then, so we have a discussion, Rabbi Yoshua says, well, Yom Tov Yochiach, Sheetiro Bo Mishum Lachav, Asur Bo Mishum Shavuot. 
Yeah, well, you know, the all the laws pertaining to Yom Tov, to the Chag itself, to the festival itself, will prove that argument otherwise, right? Because we see that the Torah allows certain certain prohibited labors from Shabbat that are allowed on Yontif. And we know this from just our practice of Yontif in terms of cooking and baking and carrying and so on, right? And those are things that are prohibited, but then they are they're prohibited um, because they end up being prohibited because of the rabbinic decree, right? These are things that are normally prohibited as malacha, but then they are permitted on Yontif. And then we say, no, but that's prohibited if it's a shvut, if it's a rabbinic decree. So Basically, the discussion here says we cannot derive any policy from a logical inference when it comes to the rabbinic prohibitions on on this combination day, right? Erev Pesach, Shechal, Yopet Shabbat. So then Rabbi Ezra comes back and says, Maza Yehoshua, which again, like it's it's so personable in a Mishnah, which is just very unusual. Where did you get such a, a weak proof that you're going to say that you're going to say that the optional things are going to be compared to a mitzvah, right? That does not hold up. And we should, we are, you know, as learners should be able to say, that's a kind of a weak proof, right? Rabbi Lezer's point is the same thing. So Rabbi Kiva comes and answers, What's haza'ah? This is a sprinkling. Right, the sprinkling, and specifically in the context of a, of a para aduma, a red heifer. Right, the red heifer is the sacrifice that is brought, to, and it is it makes the person who brings it tame. It renders that person impure, and it purifies those um, it purifies those who are already tame, who are already impure. And the idea is that that is done for a mitzvah. Right, and then the whole the point of that would be to enable somebody to offer the korban pesach, and so. Isn't that a problem of a rabbinic decree, but it does not override Shabbat? So to here, right? Don't be surprised if here you can find things that are, um, I'm going to just read this inside. Don't be, don't be surprised. Don't be wonderstruck about these. Some of these are mitzvot and some of these are rabbinic decree and we say they do not override Shabbat. So then Rabbi Lezer comes back to Rabbi Akiva. Again, like I, I kind of would love to be in this. This really feels like it's a, I don't know if it's a Shabbos table discussion or a Beit Midrash discussion. They're clearly hashing it out, meaning this is a real figuring out of the halacha and they're responding one to another. I'm a Rabbi Lezer. Um, I don't accept this proof, right? Because you're talking about something where I can infer that it's permitted for that same reason. Meaning if we're talking about shechita, which is biblically prohibited, and that is going to override Shabbos, then we could also say that that same hazah, the same sprinkling, which would otherwise be prohibited, but because of a shvut, because of rabbinic decree, shouldn't that also override Shabbat? Meaning you, you, can't, you can't make a case using a logic, which I've already said I don't accept. That's right. This is the, the nitty gritty of the dispute here. Um, speaks to, I would say, even long-held positions by Rabbi Lezer, Rabbi Kiva, Rabbi Yoshua about how they approach halacha. Now we're hitting um, our daf today, meaning all of that was the mission on the, the first part of the mission that's on the previous page. Now Rabbi Kiva responds to Rabbi Lezer, and he says, well, uh, we can say the opposite, right? Meaning, and so they're going to they're gonna bat this around still even further. But what, again, what part of what I find to be just kind of, I don't know, 
it makes you want to follow the argument, I think, even more, is the personalities here. Akiva, Rabbi Lezer says to Rabbi Akiva, first of all, he just calls him Akiva, right? He doesn't say Rabbi Akiva. He says, you have uprooted what was written in the Torah when it's talking about the Mo'ado, the Korban Pesach at its time. Because the whole point of it is that the Korban Pesach time is sacrosanct. It is going to happen on the 14th day of Nisan, whether it's Chol or whether it's Shabbos. And Rabbi, Lezer, and Rabbi Akiva says back to him, Rabbi, meaning, because again, there's a hierarchy here. Rabbi Lezer is the teacher. Rabbi Akiva is still the student, even though for us, maybe Rabbi Akiva is, a, you know, ends up being the more profound, more known uh, teacher. He says, well, give me another time in the Torah where you have such a thing that has such a specific time, like the shrit, shrit, like, excuse me, the shrit of the Korban Pesach. And so, the, you know, at the end of the time, at the end of the whole Mishnah, we end up with this principle that where Rabbi Kiva basically says that anything that is prohibited, you know, that is part of the offering of the Korban that could be done on Erev Shabbat uh, does not o- override Shabbat. But the Shrita itself and certain other aspects that we that we start with in the Mishnah as well, sprinkling and so on, you can't do it on Erev Shabbat. It's not something that you could have done as preparation because you have to do the shrita on the on the proper date. So then all of those things are the are he 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 arrives at a general rule that says these this is what will override Shabbat, meaning those things which were impossible to do in advance or afterwards. He doesn't say or afterwards, but I will add that in because it becomes clear in terms of the roasting and so on. Um, and there's our long Mishnah. And it's it's not a, a narrative over what's going to happen. It's really a debate over what's allowed and when. Yeah, and I think the Brisa that the Gemara is going to start with, which is chock full of so many interesting things, and that's why I'm going to take the time to read it all. I think there's a reason that this Mishnah actually ends up being long because we're going to see that some of these halachot around the Korban Pesach and their understanding actually was lost. And so I think for whatever reason, you know, the Mishnah here felt it was actually very important to preserve the back and forth, the logic, the thinking here. Um, you know, this is a theme that I think, Anne, you and I have talked about a lot, which is by the time the Mishnah is really being redacted, you know, many of these things were not done for a very long time. Um, and may have already gotten forgotten. And I think the the fact that the Mishnah wants to be so long is actually a reflection of that. And then we're going to see that even more so uh, in the Brisa to come. Yeah, take it away. Yeah, Tana Rabbanan. So now we're going to go through a super long Brisa here, right? Halachazo nit alma mi b'nei b'tera. So this law was forgotten by the sons of uh, the sons of b'tera. So this was a particular family um, that served as sort of the leaders of the Sanhedrin after Shmai and Avtalyon. So remember, we have these five zugot. We have the five pairs. Shmai and Avtalyon are the fourth of the pair. Um, and Hillel and Shammai are the fifth of the pair. And so there was this family, B'nai B'tayra, um, and they, they were three brothers, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Shimon, and Rabbi Yehuda. And they were the sons. The, the sons. Um, and the other place to look at is... Um, uh, you could see there's a Mishnah in Ediot uh, in Parakhet Mishnah Gimel that talks about Rabbi Yehuda ben Betera speaking to Rabbi Gamliel. So you'll see this name, you know, sort of come out. So the sons of B'nai Betera, this halacha was hidden from them, right? In other words, whether or not you can slaughter the Korban Pesach 
on Shabbat. So it was totally forgotten. And again, it wasn't practical at any point. But to think about the fact that, you know, the Korban Pesach is an essential Asay mitzvah, right? If you, there are two mitzvah say in the entire Torah. This I'll, I'll share, uh, you know, this was always the Bar Torah that was given at my Seder by my father, Zechon Alavacha, that there are two mitzvah say that you get a, you get curries for if you don't fulfill. Usually it's a lotase, right? And it's brit milah, and it's the giving of the Korban Pesach. So I think wanting to preserve the halachot around it even though it may not have been relevant, reflects how important it was within our, you know, within halacha and within our religion. So one time it felt, it came that the 14th fell on Shabbat. So it was exactly this question. And they could not remember, right, whether or not you were actually allowed to bring the Korban Pesach on that day, if, if whether or not, you know, override Shabbos. Amru, they said, so they turn around and they basically say, does anybody remember this halacha? And so they said to him, now remember, this is actually before the Beit HaMikdash is destroyed. So at the time of the Mishnah to discussion, when Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Akiva, and Rabbi Yeshua are discussing it, the Beit HaMikdash has already been destroyed. But at this time, the Beit HaMikdash still does exist. And so Amrulahem, so some people come and they say, There's a man who came up from Babel, the Hillel Hababli Shemo, and his name is Hillel. So this is Hillel of Hillel and Shaman. I think we've mentioned before that we know that Hillel was from Babel. And again, this price is also interesting and interesting that the Talmud Bavli wants to bring it here because, you know, one of the themes we've always, we keep seeing throughout is sort of this tension between the Torah of Eretz Yisrael and the Torah of Bavel. And here we have an example where this Babylonian is going to seem to hold the key, right? So they say there's this man who came from Babel, and he served under, right, this the, the fourth zug of Shammai and Avtalyon. And he knows whether or not Pesach overrides Shabbos or it doesn't. They send, you know, messengers to him and they call him Amrulo. They said to him, Right? Do you know whether or not the Pesach actually, you know, if, if it's Docha, if it overrides it? Amr Lahem, he says to them, He says, but there's one single Pesach offering during the year that overrides Shabbos. Right? Vahalo Harbeyoter. Right, but are there not many more than two hundred Pesach offerings during the year that also override the Shabbos? In other words, the Pesach offering is the only one of the many, many sacrifices, the many korbanot that we have, right, where the shchita actually can override uh, the can override Shabbos. And so, what he's trying to say is that we have many Shabbatot during the year. Right, there should be 52 Shabbatot in the year, right? And on all of these Shabbatot, right, there are four sacrifices. Well, sorry, we're talking about you know, for the non Jewish year, let me say, sorry, for the Jewish year, which goes by the lunar calendar, there are actually 50, okay? And there are four, right? And there are, and on those Shabbos, there are four sacrifices two Tamids and two, and two Musaf offerings, okay? Plus, there are the two Shabbos during the year that fall out on Pesach and Sukkot, right? So you have all of these korbanot 
which actually get done during Shabbos. So what he's trying to say here, Hillel, is, is you're asking me a question about this one korban of the korban Pesach. And we know what? We know that there are tons of korbanot that are docha Shabbos, right? There are over 200 that are docha the Shabbos. So in a way, he's sort of saying to them, like, he, I don't even understand what the question is. Amrulo, they said to him, so they said, how do you know this? How do you know that specifically the Korban Pesach is allowed to be docha? Amar Laham, he says to them, Ne'amar mo'adoba Pesach, right? Because we have this pasuk um, in, right? That again, in Bamidbar, Perik Tet, Pasuk Bet, right? That says, Vayasu b'nei Israel ta Pesach b'mo'ado, that the children of Israel, they will make Pesach at its, you know, appointed time, Right? The Ne'amar Mo'ado B'Tamid, okay? And the word B'Mo'ado uh, appears in connection with uh, the Korban Tamid. And this is in Bamidbar Per Kavchet, Pasuk Bed. There it says, Saba B'nei Yisrael B'Amarta Alihem Ekorbani Lachmi Lishi Reich Michochi Tishmeru Lahakriv Li B'Mo'ado, right? Command the children of Israel that my offering, my food for my fires, my, my the Reich Michoch, my, you know, beautiful aroma, my beautiful smell, guard it and bring it to me in its appointed time. So this word moado appears with the Korban Tamid. It appears with the Korban Pesach. So they're basically making a Gezer Shava. Ma moado hamor b'tamid dochad Shabbos. What with in its appointed time, which we say with the Korban Tamid and it overrides Shabbat. Af moado hamor b'pesach dochad Shabbat. So we have this idea of the appointed time with Pesach as well. So therefore we're also going to say it should override the Shabbat. Now he's going to give an additional proof, which is also Kalvachomer. And the Gemara will actually explain why did they need both of these proofs, but it's interesting that he brings both two proofs here. Here the Korban Tamid, where you don't get a punishment of Karet if you don't bring it. Which the punishment of not doing it, you do get Karet. Is it not logical that, of course, it's going to be that it would also override Shabbos, right? So we have two proofs that Hillel basically brings, right? He brings the Gezer Shava proof, and he brings the Kalvachomer proof. And immediately, they make this Babylonian the Nasi over them. And he spends the whole day telling the laws of the Korban Pesach. And I thought this was interesting because this was very similar to the Gemara we had in Brachos, and Dav Chav Gimel, right, when, or Chav Zayin, I'm not remembering right now, right, when Rebbe Elazar becomes the um, new head of the Nasi after Rabbi Gamliel is kicked out, and it also says that the day he becomes the Nasi, right, the head of the Beit Midrash, that all these new halachot are taught. So there's something that, like, something was going on, that sort of Torah was not being taught, the Masorah was not being transmitted the way it should have been, and immediately once they see that here they have this teacher from Babel, Hillel, who served under Shmaya and Avtalion, right? Uh, and, and he was able to give the reasoning over this, and not just one reason, but two, they immediately appoint him as being in charge. He's now the Nasi, but not only that, he now continues and he teaches all the halachot of Hilchot Pesach. Now, again, it's saying something about the Torah of Eretz Yisrael, that they had to have this outsider from Babel come, right? This is emphasizing to you how much, how low the level of Torah learning was at the time, that it's Hillel from Babel who comes and sort of fills his needs. So in the middle of, of his teaching, right, um, he starts to sort of bother, right, the, the Bnei B'teira. 
Amar Lehen, he says to them, Miga Ralachem, so we know that this is what's going on, but he actually says it out loud, right? He says, I should come from Babel and be the Nasi over you. Are you lazy? That none of you bothered to serve Shmaya and Abtalyon, right? So he a little bit gives them some tochecha. He rebukes them a little bit because I think he recognizes that it should always be Torah Mitzion, right? It should always be that the centrality of Torah should be in Israel. And he basically says, like, what went on here, guys, that I'm the one who's now the Nasi, that you who are the sons of Israel, like, you, you didn't know, you, you weren't able to figure this out yourselves. Amrulo, they said to him, Rebbe, shachach erev Shabbat mahu. So now they're going to ask him another question, right? And, and, uh, and they say, what happens if somebody forgot to bring the knife uh, before Shabbat, right? In other words, the idea was is that what we learned is is that you were supposed to bring, right? We saw this, you know, in the Mishnah that you're supposed to bring the knife to do the Shkita before Shabbat if Erev Pesach falls out on Shabbat. So they asked him, what's the halacha here? Amr Lahani says to them, So he says, this law I learned and I actually forgot. Right? Sorry. So he says, this I actually forgot. Now, again, the comment that we're going to learn later on is, is that after he rebukes them sort of arrogantly, and Anne, I know you'll do this part of the Gemara later on, right? He sort of as a punishment, the Gemara is going to explain, he actually forgets it because he sort of was very arrogant with them. But he says, leave it to Israel, right? Right? If they themselves are not prophets, their sons are prophets. In other words, the truth is eventually going to come out. We will figure out what this halacha is supposed to be. Lamachar the next day, Misha Pischu Tala to Chavu Bitzmaro, right? So somebody who was bringing a korban Pesach, right? They saw that a sheep was stuck right the sh- with with a sheep. There was a knife stuck into its wool in order to transport it to the Beit Hamikdash. Misha Pischu Gedi to Chachu Bein Karnav, and somebody's Pesach offering was a goat, right? It, there was a knife stuck between its horns. So in other words, what happens here is that. Basically, they look around, they see people bringing their Korban Pesach, and they see how they brought it. And that sort of was the solution, right? Because they saw these people must have understood how do you bring it when it's on Shabbat and you didn't bring the knife before. You either stick it in the wool or you sort of stick it between the goat's horns. So Hill sees this and it like is a trigger for him. And he remembers and he says, He says, oh, he goes, this is what I actually received. And I remember learning this actually from Shmaya Naftalyon. So a very, very interesting brisa that, yes, is brought here to really elucidate some of the halachot, or really, I think, to give us a reflection on that these halachot were actually lost. But I think this brisa really tells us so much more. One, that the halachot of Korban Pesach were forgotten. Two, it gives us a great origin story of Hillel and makes us understand not only was Hillel great because he was great, but one of the reasons why he was so great is that here he was actually from Babel and actually was appointed to be the Nasi in Eretz Israel. Three, that there was a period of time after Shmaya Naftalyon when the Bnei B'tera came took over that maybe the learning or the, or the level of transmission of the Mesoah was sort of at a low point. And fourth, and Anna, this will segue into I think what you're going to talk about to wrap up this episode, you know, Hillel... And it's interesting, it doesn't come out and directly rebuke him. Hillel, who we always say, greeted everybody so nicely and told Torah so nicely, 
here we see a side of Hillel's personality that I'm not sure there's any other story that's brought in the Mishnah or the Gemara where we see a little bit of a harsh side to Hillel. Um, and eventually the Gemara is going to say that he actually didn't behave appropriately. So there's a side to Hillel's personality here that we don't see anywhere else. I mean, I'm willing to say that perhaps, you know, he learned from his mistakes and he and he carried on better. You know, I just wanted to make one comment about the teaching of the halachot, right? I wonder if that has any um, hint to the practice that came into play for Shabbat Hagadol, right? Where there's a long, very often there's a long drasha that's given that could even be some portion of halacha, some portion of agadah, but that we we do this like we're going to pay attention to all kinds of details about Pesach before Pesach to get ready for Pesach. And I always feel like if we're not ready for Pesach by now, meaning by the Shabbat beforehand, then we're probably in trouble in terms of our actual, I mean, you could do it faster, but people generally nowadays so often prepare so long in advance or begin preparing so long in advance. But I wonder if that tradition doesn't have its roots in this, in this Brita. I, I, I actually love that idea. And you know, the concept that this sort of was like maybe the first Shabbos Hagadol Dresha, uh, I, I'm going to have to work that into its Vartower once. It's beautiful. It's a great <laughs> idea. Okay, so I wanted to come back to this point about Hill not speaking appropriately, right? So what happens? He, the, the idea is that he says, I heard this halacha and I've forgotten it. And the question, the first question is, how could that statement be an arrogant statement to begin with? Meaning, if the idea is that he's being punished by having forgotten it, then why is the claim that he's forgotten it, why is that the arrogant statement? And I think what happens is that it's the presumption that everybody should know that he used to know it, but now he forgot it. As opposed to saying simply, I don't know it, right? He says, I forgot it, and now everybody can, you know, remember that he's so great that he used to know it. And I love this line of, you know, the B'nai Israel will figure it out on their own because they're, if not, if they're not Nevi'im, they're B'nai Nevi'im. So I do think that that happens often enough. The issue is not that he didn't know it. The issue is his claim that he used to know it, right? The implicit claim by saying that he forgot it. So the Gemara here kind of goes off on a tangent about Midot, about character traits. Amr of Yehuda, Amr Rav, Kol HaMityaher, anybody who acts haughtily, Im Chachamu, Chachmato, Mistaleket Mimenu, if he's a wise person, if he's a scholar, then his uh, wisdom or his scholarship will depart from him. Im Navihu, if he's a prophet, Nivuato, Mistaleket Mimenu, his prophecy will leave him. Im Chachamu, Chachmato, Mistaleket Mimenu, Mihilal, the example of the Torah scholar who's who's Wisdom left him is exactly this case of Hillel. The Amar Mar Hitchil me Kantran Bedvarim, Bakamarlo, who Allah Hazu, Shamati Vishakhti, Im Navihu. I'm sorry, so all of that is exactly this case. I don't need to translate it because we've already discussed it plenty. Im Navihu, Im Navihu, Nevuatomis, Telekimimenu. Where do we see a prophet who lost their prophecy? Me Dvorah, in the story of Devora. Dirti of Chadlu, Prazon, by Israel Chadelu. So what happens? In the case of Devorah, the Pasuk, the verse says the villagers ceased. They ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, meaning I, Devorah the Nevi'ah, came, I came a mother in Israel. Now this is her song. This is poetry. This is the book of Shoftim, chapter 5. It is not prose, right? So I would like to think that she could be granted a little bit of leeway in trying to, you know, 
present everything in poetically, but the idea is that here she has self-glorified herself to say that she came along and she was a savior, which in fact she was, right? And the idea is that then, then indeed she was punished with the loss of her prophecy because afterwards it says, Uri, Uri, Devorah, meaning get up, wait, wait, awaken and utter a song, meaning your prophecy has left you and now you have to start again, so to speak. As far as I understand, it comes back, right? It's not that it's a permanent departure. And likewise, Hillel, his scholarship doesn't leave him forever. It's a matter of he forgot something that he should have known, and Devorah had to bring we had to bring her back to the prophecy. And then Rach Lakish gets into the act. Rach Lakish, Adam right? Up until now, we're talking about Mitya Hair, somebody who acts haughtily. In this place, in this next section is about somebody who becomes angry. And the same issue that your your wisdom or your prophecy is going to leave you if you get angry. The example of somebody's uh, wisdom leaving him is Moshe Rabbeinu. So what happens? Moshe became angry. This is not a surprise. Moshe became angry, you know, relative in this kind of righteous indignation kind of anger. It's one of his it's one of his personal traits. You know, it's something we see throughout the narratives of Moshe, throughout Sefer Shemot. So in this case, we're talking about actually the story in Bamidbar where he became angry with the officers of the captains over all of the troops of B'nai Israel. He was angry with them, and what's the punishment? Well, then Eleazar, the son of Aaron, had to go to and say to all of the army that this is the law, right? Meaning Moshe didn't say because presumably he it had become hidden from him; it was forgotten from by him because of the anger. And what about the prophet who has lost his prophecy? Elisha. This is from the story of Elisha. Elisha is the successor of Eliyahu. So what happens? Alicia said, he, Alicia became angry, because that's, again, the trait that we're talking about, we're concerned about that I can make you lose your, again, wisdom or prophecy. He becomes angry with the king of Israel, namely Yehoshaphat. He says, were it not for the fact that I have, you know, I'm, I'm, I will give honor to the presence of Yoshafat, the king of Judah. I would not look over to you. I would not see you. Meaning, it's a really a big slur that you could pretty much only say in anger, I guess, against um, the king of Israel. And then it says afterwards, you know, and now bring me again. Bring me a, a musician, right? And then when the musician played, and Yad Hashem came upon him, meaning. The implication is that the Yad Hashem, the hand of God, had departed him and was now back, right? And that's why it has to say it is upon him. Um, and because, and it's exactly because Elisha had become angry, so he had lost his prophetic spirit for however long. And then the music, I suppose, you know, brings it back to him. And then lastly here, I'm Rabbi Mani Bar Patish, Kol Shekoes, Afilu Poskin Alav Gdola. Anyone who becomes angry, even if the greatness was given to him from heaven, you lose your greatness. You, he, his, his, the degree of his greatness is diminished. And where is that from? Eliav. Eliav is the older brother of David HaMelech. 
שנאמר, ויחר אף אליאב בדוד, ויאמר, למה זה ירדת ועל מה נטשת מעט הצאן, והנה במדבר, אני ידעתי את זדונך ואת רועה לבבך, צר לבביך, כי למען רעות המלחמה ירדת. ואליאב is angry for, against דוד, and he says, you know, where did you come down? You've left those sheep in the wilderness, you're so arrogant, you're so bad, you, you know, you, you've come down to spectate on the battle. which is such a brotherly attack on a younger brother, right? Um, but, it, but it's a matter of anger. So then when Shmuel um, goes to anoint um, David HaMelech, um, you know, he starts off with the other brothers. He tries to see which one is it going to be. Um, and he first says, you know, Vayom Hashem al Shmuel, I'm sorry, Lo bazeh b'char Hashem. ובאליאב כתיב, ויאמר השם אל שמואל, אל תביט על מראהו ועל גבוה קומתו, כי מעשתיהו. אליאב is written off. God writes אליאב off, because, presumably because of that anger that he demonstrated. So it's not the first time, it won't be the last time that the Gemara and the Torah and so on present anger as a really bad trait, a really negative trait, or that arrogance for that matter is another one that the Torah uh, really frowns upon. And, but the idea is that there's also like a practical implication that you lose your greatness if you succumb to these negative character traits. If you are, can be overcome by anger or you can be overcome by haughtiness, then in that moment you lose some of what you, were, what you had earned you know, in becoming either a prophet, I suppose that's not really earned in the same way, or the scholarship, the chokhmah, the wisdom, because um, it's a contradiction in terms. You have to have a certain amount of humility to be a prophet. You have to have a certain am- amount of humility to be wise. And if you are angry, or if you are, obviously, if you're arrogant, then you are no longer exercising that same humility. And it stands to reason that you would lose some measure, at least temporarily, of the, the greatness that you've achieved. I, look, I think this is a nice passage that's really showing us lots of examples from Tanakh. You know, people, these people were not perfect. Um, and that even if the Torah doesn't sort of explicitly say something that they did wrong, a really close read, you know, can teach us some important values of being leaders and, and what type of people we should aim and strive to be. Amen to that. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. I know it was a long one. We probably have a lot more to say, but we'll wrap it up here. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hodgin website. Let us know what you thought about this stop on the Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.